0: You are listening to episode 69 of In Film We Trust. I'm Lou. I'm Wayne. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream.
1: And now, on with the show. Ah!
0: Another week, another In Film We Trust episode. And today, we welcome author Dan Epstein onto the podcast. Dan is the writer of baseball classics such as Stars and Strikes and Big Hair and Plastic Grass. Dan is also a connoisseur of pop culture from the 1970s, so it is no mere coincidence he has brought us Walter Hill's 1979 New York classic The Warriors to discuss. So if you're a fan of Dan Epstein, whether it's from his baseball writing or his music articles, or even if you've not heard of him before, you're sure to become a fan after listening to his natural rock and tour style in a fun-filled episode peppered with an assortment of what the fuck 1970s stories.
2: It's November ladies and gentlemen, which for movie fans means we've entered that awkward transitional period between Halloween and Christmas. Chucky, Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers and Freddy Krueger are safely in the rearview mirror and snow, sleigh bells and big roaring fires are not too far away. So to keep you lovely people entertained during this time, we've brought on another extra special guest to discuss a film close to their heart. Does it have anything to do with November? What the hell does it matter? The film is The Warriors, and the guest is Dan Epstein. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. How are you this fine day? Uh, Thank you, gentlemen. I am doing
1: well. How are you?
0: We are very good, Dan, and it's a pleasure to have you on. So, Dan, our audience, if you are not familiar with them do you want to ingratiate yourselves with them who the hell are you dad i i always i always feel awkward asking that because it either sounds like you are in the early stages of dementia (laughs) where am i man um
1: no uh happy to uh to i am a writer and author i live in the hudson valley of new york uh in the u.s i um have written for Going on 30 years about music and pop culture and film and all kinds of good stuff for a whole Hmm. bunch of magazines, including Rolling Stone, uh, Flood, Revolver, the Jewish Daily Forward and about, you know, several dozen others. I've written books about baseball and pop culture in the 1970s. Um, I'm currently working on a book uh, with the band Red Cross about uh,
0: their huge life fun. And I've got times. to say, huge fun. Yes,
1: excellent. And um, so I have a Substack which uh, I put a lot of effort into uh, called Jagged Time Lapse, which 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 kind of uh, explores and celebrates the many ways that music kind of serves as a time machine and can, you know, rocket you back and forth in time to, you know, not only the time that the music was made, but the time that you first heard it, the time that it made an impression upon you. And um, so I I talk a lot about that and, you know, in relation to my latest musical obsessions, and then I also um, use it as a place to kind of, air out a lot of interviews that i've done over the decades with um uh you know rock stars of note uh many of which have never you know seen the full light of day before and uh it's a lot of fun it's uh danepstein.substack.com and uh, jagged time lapse and you should subscribe
2: so you're a guy who writes on a variety of topics but the word you keep bringing up over and over again is baseball yep so what is this what is this desire to write about baseball you even say about fitting baseball into music so how <laughs> are you relating baseball you know to the pop culture world as a whole
1: Well I mean I'm I'm specifically fascinated with the 1970s because that was a decade in which baseball which had kind of existed outside of American pop culture I mean it was its own thing and it was certainly you know the national pastime but in the 70s that's when all these other Elements and influences that are making themselves known in pop culture, everything from Black Power to um, um, the appearance of color television, uh, you know, really kind mm. of impacted the sport. And and it was a period where players, you know, and in, in before the 70s were, you know, very kind of buttoned down, uh, not. Um, you know, not very expressive of their own personalities, right. or if, you know, um, and the 70s was sort of like this time to f- fly their freak flags, as I like to say. And, <laughs> and so and that was the period where, you know, I was a kid in the 70s. And so that was a period where I became a massive baseball fan and also became a massive music fan. And so those two are kind of things are kind of inextricably linked in my mind. Mm-hmm. And, I felt like uh, when I wrote Big Hair and Plastic Grass, which was my first baseball in the 70s book, uh, I wrote it primarily because it was the book on 70s baseball that I wanted to read. So many of the so many of the, the the writing and the documentary coverage of baseball in that period kind of presented it as this kind of uncomfortable aberration, you know, it's like, Oh, you know, this it's kind of weird. So let's just talk about Carlton Fisk's home run in the (laughs) 75 world series. Let's talk about Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's record and let's move on. And, and my attitude is no, let's not move on. Let's look (laughs) back at this because, you know, A, because it was really cool and B, B, because so much that happened in baseball in the 70s still reverberates through the sport now. And I should also say I'm not a big fan of the current version of Major League Baseball. I think there have been all kinds of rule changes. There have been all sorts of, you know, ways that the, you know, that the game has changed just to squeeze more money out of of it and and kind of winds up squeezing the soul out of it in the process and uh so I, i'm at you know that's another reason why i'm you know writing primarily about music these days because i you know i've i've uh been through a rough couple of years and and in the in those years uh baseball did nothing to make me feel like my life was worth living it, it didn't Whereas medicate your music No, not at all. Music was definitely my medication and music got me through it. And, you know, the worst nights, you know, there was nothing that was better for me than to, you know, plop, uh, you know, of a vinyl LP on the turntable, put on my old Panasonic headphones and just get lost in the music. So this is so my sub stack is really, you know, about ultimately about that, about getting lost in the music, about finding things that really, you know, bring you joy and make life worthwhile. And uh, baseball, unfortunately, does not do that for me anymore.
0: But you mentioned the 70s there, your fascination with the 70s. And as you said, you know, we all know, even over in the UK, the baseball is referred to as America's pastime. And in the United States, NFL, especially in the 70s, I believe, was taken over the national discourse. But I imagine... With you here, Dan, a healthy amount of listeners are going to be here because Dan Epstein, the baseball guy. So I think I'd be remiss in not asking you to reiterate a story I've heard, but some may have not, the whole interest in Doc Ellis LSD story from baseball in the 1970s. (laughs)
1: Yes, well, okay, that's an iconic story, right. and and uh, and in fact, there's a great documentary on it called uh, uh, "No No," a documentary, which actually I was honored to be asked to uh, uh, be in. I, I speak about Doc and his, you know, and, and Doc was was a perfect example of this sort of bleed in of you know all these other elements into the game. I mean, Doc was a was a black guy from. Um, southern california who was you know a decade earlier uh, a black baseball player might have been you know would have most likely kept his opinions to himself right. and just kind of gone along to get along and doc was very outspoken about um you know the way that uh black players were treated in the game and um and you know, was not shy about uh, airing out his grievances uh, to to the reporters. Uh, and he was also a guy who really liked. Uh, he was really into Black Sabbath and Iron Butterfly. And who is and, it? And, you know, really into yeah, really into to hard rock. And he was into drugs. And <laughs> uh, he, clearly, <laughs> clearly, the iconic story about him is that there was a game in 1970 that he was slated to pitch uh he was pitching for the pittsburgh pirates against the san diego padres in san diego uh on the pirates road trip they stopped in la so he stopped to hang out with some friends and party and in the process he uh dropped some acid with his friends and kind of <laughs> lost track of days so when he as you, you do know, he wakes up and re- as you do and he re- realize you know back when acid was really good and so he he uh he he wakes up, realizes he's supposed to be in San Diego and supposed to be pitching that uh that night, and uh somehow manages to get down to San Diego and winds up pitching a no-hitter. And it's one of you know, it's an incredibly sloppy no-hitter. He walks a number okay. of Uh, batters, uh, the batters who get on, many of them steal bases against him (laughs) because he's completely not paying attention to what's happening over at first base. But he sees this rainbow path leading from the pitcher's mound to the catcher's mitt, and he just keeps throwing the ball down the path and uh, winds up uh, pitching a no-hitter. Now, at the time, of course, he did not say afterwards, you know i'm on acid uh to to the (laughs) press he didn't reveal that until until the 80s long after he'd retired and the the thing with doc was that and the documentary gets into this like yeah it's a funny story and you know it's kind of badass i mean in some ways it's the greatest athletic feat you know ever (laughs) made in professional sports the
0: most impaired anyway (laughs) Yeah. uh,
1: uh, But, you know, but the sad thing was he was an addict and he was, you know, and his alcohol and drug abuse uh, not only, you know, kind of short circuited his playing career, but, you know, it was tremendously destructive to to his marriage. And and in the 80s, he got sober. And, you know, part of, you know, as people who, you know, Go through the programs will tell you like an important part of it is is of 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 uh, getting sober is being honest about your past transgressions and so there are people to this day who claim you know no way he you know he pitched an uh, acid no hitter he was just saying that for attention or whatever but you know Doc was Doc was a very honest person whatever his faults. Uh, he was very honest. And once he got straight, like it, th- this was an important part of his story. Yep. And in fact, you know, as as the documentary gets into, like he was kind of embarrassed by it, like to, to a degree, because it was like here he here. He had an accomplishment that so few pitchers, you know, comparatively speaking, ever achieve on a major right. league level. And, and he could barely remember it because he was so fucked up and and also i should say that he was you know when you say he pitched a no hitter on acid there are some caveats to that like he wasn't in the midst of a trip he was you know a good at least half a day out of you know, oh so a full he was coming off he was of coming off trip. he was coming down and he'd actually taken some speed <laughs> before the game just to get him You know, because all ball player or most ball players in those days took speed before ball games just to, you know, get the energy up, get them focused. So he did that as a way to kind of like accelerate the come down. But as a result, there were still, you know, he's still seeing trails. He's still occasionally hallucinating. At one point, he thinks Richard Nixon is behind the plate calling the balls and strikes. I mean, they're, you know, so he's in and out of the effects of of the drug. (laughs) Um, so, you know, and the other thing I, I, I always say in his, you know, in defense, when people say like, Oh no, he couldn't have, he couldn't have done that. If, you know, if you gave, you know, if I took acid right now and took the mound or did pretty much anything, I would not be successful. Um, you know, I, I, if I tried to play guitar, I would just kind of, you know, wind up plucking one, hitting all the wrong notes.
0: Right. You know,
1: or just like watching the colors come out of the, the fretboard. But the, <laughs> but if it's something that you do, every, you know, that you've done all your life and you mm. do it every four days and you have this muscle memory and like the c- competitive aspect is so strong in you that like, you know, rain or shine, you know, feeling good, feeling yep. bad, you go out there and you try mm. to kick ass and you, you know, and you're a... Six and a half foot guy with you know with all the tools like yeah you probably you know like um, you know it's like Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix it's
2: basically it's it's basically instinctual is what you're saying exactly so it's something you've done your whole life so whether or not Richard Nixon's actually on the field this is still something that you <laughs> right. can do you're you're doing it it's like like Hendrix used to
1: used to perform on acid and you know, and most of the time sounded great doing it. You know, it's just like he was (laughs) that he was that connected to the guitar and to the music that it could, you know, that worked for him even, you know, listen, you know, the, the who at Woodstock, like there's the famous story about somebody spiked Pete Townsend's coffee before they went on stage. So he realized like, you know, as, as they were starting to play that, like he was tripping you listen to that performance, you cannot tell like, oh, yeah, Pete was on Acid. I mean, it's maybe not the greatest two performance ever, but like they're on and he's on and he's he's going through it because he's played these songs hundreds of times before in front of other yeah. people.
0: So I think down here, everybody is making a very pro-drug message. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, man,
1: if you can't handle
2: Acid, don't take it. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> and that's that's the psa for the episode
0: we are intrinsically done a film podcast so if you've came to age of this era the 1970s what were some of those films that grabbed you because i believe and i never knew this till you stated to us in private you actually went to university and studied film
1: yeah i I was i was a film major so you
0: must have had this extreme passion for cinema what were some of those films that grabbed you early on
1: Well, Jaws, obviously, and and I didn't realize until much later, like what, you know, how important that film was and, you know, in so many ways. But, but yeah, that was a huge favorite of mine as a kid. I, you know, my dad, and this will lead into the Warriors. um, My dad was from New York City, and I was born in New York City, but we moved to Michigan when I was about a year and a half. But my dad pretty much immediately realized that he had made a mistake <laughs> by moving us to Michigan. And he spent the next 10 years trying to get out and trying to get a job that would take him back to New York city. And in, in the meantime, if there was a TV show or a film that took place in New York city, we were watching it because, you know, that was his way of dealing with his homesickness, but it was also sort of a way of like showing my sister and I like, Or at least me, my sister was born in Michigan, but sort of like, like this is our ancestral home. Like, you know, I, I, I liken it as like feeling like we were royalty in exile. Like, you know, we live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is a cool town but we are not of this place. We are of New York City and we would go Iggy Pop
0: and- the Stooge is Ann Arbor.
1: Oh yeah, well, I- I- Ips- look, please, please, please. He was from Ypsiland, Okay, okay. An important distinction. And Bob Seeger was from Ann Arbor. Bob Seeger went to my junior high school, obviously well before I did. Um, and yes, and like how many other, you know, class, you know, in my fifth grade class, Everyone knew who Iggy Pop was. And this right. is like 1977. How many other fifth graders in 1977 <laughs> knew who Iggy Pop was? Right. And, but we, we but our image of him was as this, this kind of like musical boogeyman where like, like, you know, like, you know, I remember sitting in a, in a class, in a school assembly in the auditorium and there's, you know, this stage. And I remember... My friend John turning to me and go like, man, wouldn't it be cool if Iggy Pop just showed up right now and started pissing all over the stage? Because that's what we thought he did. That's what we thought Iggy Pop's role was in the pop cultural firmament. Well, the
0: self-mutilating boogeyman, was he?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, he just, like, got up and, you know, got got radical. And uh, basically, we would see any film that took place in New York that was out and also any film that was by Mel Brooks or by Woody Allen, because <laughs> <Right. you> know, <laughs> yeah. they had the New York, New York yep. Jewish yep. sense of humor that, you know, uh, my dad was, you know, w- was into. And so, um, you know, so, so films like the taking of Pelham one, two, three, you know, like, uh, pretty much any film that, like has, I mean, to this day, like I'm a, you know, Serpico, uh, any, Mm -hmm. any film that has that just like early mid seventies, late seventies New York thing where you can practically just like taste the lead paint, on the, you know, on the windowsill and just like, it's grimy, it's gritty, it's, you know, it's rough and tumble, but it's romantic (laughs) as hell. And that, and so that, you know, so from an early age, like, I was really attracted, you know, and, and then also just like with stuff like the odd couple, where it's like mm-hmm. you know, like most of the odd couple I find out much later was actually, you know, shot in Los Angeles. But, you know, they had the out the the exterior scenes which were shot in New York and all the references were about places yep. in New York and restaurants in New York and and stadiums in New York and so like this is all filling my head is like New York is the place to be and someday I will be there.
2: So do you think it was kind of weird that these films were giving you a nostalgia from a place that you didn't even know that well like a place you hadn't spent much time in because you say films like Serpico kind of paints New York in somewhat of a bad light. Like do you think if these films are a lot more optimistic that, that wouldn't have had the same appeal to you? Did you like the fact it was really kind of low down and dirty, the themes, a lot of these films?
1: Well, I, I wouldn't say I liked it. I would say that I was, uh, like, it was compelling to me, but it was scary too. I mean, and I remember, and I was also a big Mad Magazine fan. Yep. And of course, Mad mm-hmm. Magazine was out of New York City. And, you know, a third of the jokes in every Mad Magazine was about like either getting mugged on the streets of New York City (laughs) or stepping in dog shit on the streets of New York City. So, you know, so it was just like this, you know, like I was living in Ann Arbor, which was this kind of bucolic, um, you know, university town, great place to be a kid. You could just like run out to the park. Nobody, you know, nobody worried about you. Um, And then, but it was like, ooh, New York, like that's, that's reality. That's, you know, that's, that's like, uh, and, and then, you know, watching baseball like in 1976, the Yankees win the pennant on a home run, bottom of the ninth home run by Chris Chambliss and Yankee Stadium explodes and there's riots on the field. And like Chambliss can't even touch home plate because somebody's stolen it. You know, I mean, like how much New York, how much more New York do you get so it was very like you know so i you know my dad would always kind of wax he was very nostalgic for new york and i was fascinated by it but i was also scared and in fact um you know um i remember so so late 1978 he gets a job to go back to new york city and the plan was that he and my then stepmother would move to new york city for like, and and they'd get settled. And meantime, my sister and I would move to Los Angeles to be with my mom. And then once he and my stepmother were settled, we would move Mm -hmm. to New York City. And I was kind of freaked out by this because I didn't know that I was, I was ready for New York City. And then of course we moved to LA and like, you know, two months, less than two months into moving to los angeles the warriors comes out of course and the warriors you know and this is like oh my god this is what new york city's like and i'm supposed to move there and my friends that have made in la are like really you're gonna move to new york (laughs) you know after after watching the warriors so so this is you know uh this is an important film to me i mean i think it's a fantastic film it's still one of my favorites but like at the, you know, But in real time, this was a heavy, heavy film for me.
0: Well, if you've ever divulged, I'm not sure how much you're aware of our back catalogue, we like to go into the gritty, the, the kind of outsider arts, so to speak. Sure. So, you're talking about New York, the gritty side of New York, and one of the purveyors of this, of 42nd Street Cinema, Bill Landis. He used to run a fan scene called sleezoid Express. I think this would be up your alley. This is de- delving into films of specifically the 1970s, the early 80s. These films that kind of fell underground. And then, you, you know, New York's always had this history. So we can go back a decade to the late 60s, let's say, and we've got Paul Morrissey and uh, Andy Warhol's work chelsea chelsea sure. girls heat with uh, joe d'alessandro we have all these interesting characters what permeated new york how aware of the, those kind of guys when you were young were you you know your joe d'alessandro's for example
1: well, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have been able to pick Joe D'Alessandro out of a lineup back then, but I knew who mm-hmm. Warhol yep. was, and I knew that he was making films that were, you know, because I would read the, you know, even as a little kid, I would read the movie yep. listings to see what was coming up. You know, and I always say, let say, like, Andy Warhol's Frankenstein, yep. rated X, and it was like, ooh. Flash for Frankenstein. But, you know, because... Right, because because I was into uh, I, you know I was into horror films, so it's like what could a rated X horror film be <laughs> be like? And uh, so so that was actually my f- like I didn't even realize Andy Warhol was an artist until <laughs> later. I just thought he was this guy who made dirty films. Who
0: is this guy who just keeps attaching his name to Paul Morrissey's films? <laughs> right. Well, I didn't
1: I didn't even know Paul yeah, Morrissey yeah. then. I just you know because in the ad it just said Andy Warhol's blah blah blah, and you go rated X, and and so that was uh, that was titled. So Dan, The Warriors,
0: 1979, directed by Walter Hale. What is this film about? What is the plot of this film? So the plot is basically
1: that there is a a massive gang, street gang conference uh, being held in the Bronx, where Cyrus, the leader of the Riffs, who are the biggest gang in, in uh, the Gramercy Riffs, biggest gang in New York, is calling all the gangs together to say, can you count suckers? <laughs> and that that there are 60,000 or whatever n- number he throws out there, 60,000 active gang members in New York City and only 20,000 cops. So <laughs> if you do the math, if you do the math, you know, so, so it's funny. So he's not calling them together to be he's not calling this truce to be like, hey, let's. Let's uplift the community. Let's put this energy into something positive. He's saying, "Let's combine our collective energies to take over New York." I State. think
0: this is the first film I have seen where a gang leader is, you know, forthcoming for other gangs to essentially unionize them. <laughs> right. Absolutely.
1: Just you know, America works best when we say union yes, and the uh, and uh, yeah. So so this so the warriors are kind of a. I would say not a not a high high profile yep. gang. They're they're from Coney Island, but they're kind of scrappy, not that well known outside of their turf, and and so they have to travel to the Bronx, where they you know many of them have never even been before, uh, by the New York subway system, which is about. You know, on a good day, uh, Coney to the Bronx is maybe a two hour uh, train ride. You know, so they're riding the train up and they're, you know, they're kind of nervous. They're wondering what's, you know, what this is like, if this is going to be a real deal. They never, (laughs) you know, Cyrus is kind of this mythical figure. And so they get to the, the conference and, you know, everybody's there. All these gangs, all of whom or many of whom have really kind of cartoonish <laughs> outfits and colors and uh, right as Cyrus is making his pitch his big speech to everybody and everybody's getting into it like yeah we can take this city over um Cyrus gets assassinated and um the uh by a member of another gang.
0: The rogues and the rogues
1: it, the rogues and so but Nobody sees who shoots right. him, except for one member of the warriors. And so, after the after Cyrus is killed, there are all these cop cars, like waiting, you know, filled with cops waiting to pounce on the situation. So the cops run into this playground where where the um, gathering is happening. It's complete yep. chaos. Everybody's running in all different directions, trying to get out of there and not get arrested. And while this is happening, the leader of the rogues says, you know, the warriors did it. And starts shouting, (laughs) the warriors, the the warriors, they did it. And uh, (laughs) Great impression though, Don. (laughs) Thanks. And and so the warriors leader, Cleon, is immediately set upon by the, by several of the rifts, you know, who, you know, essentially, I mean, as far as we know, they kill him, uh, but you know, they beat him down. And the warriors The warriors don't know that they've been framed for this yet. They're just trying to get out of there. But like as they're so they basically have to make their way through all this hostile territory, because, of course, now that Cyrus has been killed, the gang truce is off. So, you know, any gang in any territory is fair game. (laughs) And then as they make their way back to Coney and they get split up and come yep. back together, you know, it's sort of like, you know, meet meet at meet at the Union Square subway stop. Like, that's where we get the last train back to, to Coney. As they make their way, they find out that they've been fingered and that they've been like, and that not only are they going through hostile territory, but every gang in the city is looking for them. So this is the mm-hmm. thing, like, how do we get back to Coney you know in one piece when there's basically a bounty <laughs> on our head and uh and so it's a it's you know it's an incredible it's a really tightly paced action film lots of fist fights. um you know each each step of the way they come up against another gang that has a right. very um colorful or very
0: there's a flamboyance to everybody isn't there
1: yes, and and or if not flamboyance, like a uh, you know, like like the Lizzies, the all girl <laughs> yeah. gang, like who are, you know, quite quite clearly, you know, an all-lesbian gang, although the uh uh the Warriors are a little slow on the uptake on that one. Very slow uh, on the uptake
2: on that one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A couple years ago when Paul Thomas Anderson's film Licorice Pizza was released, everybody was referring it to as the film where everybody runs. Now I believe nobody had seen the Warriors, because essentially everybody Mm. in this fucking film is running at all times Dan. (laughs)
1: <laughs> absolutely and 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 there are definitely times where where um well there's that great scene where the two two guys from the warriors are running they're being chased by the entire baseball furies gang and one of them i believe it's cowboy yep uh says to ajax I- i'm not gonna i'm not gonna make it <laughs> like like they're they're running and they're running and he's just exhausted yep, yep. And he's just like i can't do it and ajax says good <laughs> because you know, he's he's ready to kick some ass. He's like, I'm sick of running. So uh, so th- then they square off against the baseball furies, who are really one of the most iconic perhaps the most iconic gang from this whole film like i think so
2: are you
0: partial to them for obvious reasons down the baseball furies
1: (laughs) no and that's that's the thing like 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 people like oh the baseball furies like like i remember as a kid thinking like well they're the scariest looking one ones and they're cool because you know they're they're in pinstripe baseball uniforms and they're swinging bats but they have this sort of like somewhat of a kiss makeup yep, thing yeah, going on, yep. you know, but I just felt like, like guys with bats should be like, you know, who look this scary should be way better fighters than they actually are. Like, like the warriors waste them pretty quickly. And so it just, you know, this, this is always my thing where like, you know, every Halloween, you know, people post pictures of the Baseball Furies, or they go as members of the Baseball Furies, and I'm just like, man, that they're 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 way more badass gangs in this film than the Baseball Furies. They're,
2: pro- they're probably the most overrated <laughs> group. I mean, maybe they're used, maybe they're go. used to swinging the bats at balls. Rather, than, it's that classic thing where they just take these ridiculous wild swings that anybody can duck under, knock them, and take the bat away. So yeah, they're probably the most iconic looks-wise. Like you mentioned, Kiss, when uh, one of the guy came on, I'm right. like, is that Paul Stanley? Is that <laughs> (laughs) child in the baseball (laughs) series but like you say they're not that much of a threat when you take out your kind of their appearance because yeah they're not that good with a bat overall are they
0: what we always like to do dan on this podcast is contextualize a film within the year it is released and this is 1979 walter Hill. so in 1979 now this is an interesting year for cinema and i'm sure you like many of these films we have monty python's life of brian we have the Jerk. We have Quadrophenia. I'm sure we're all WHO fans here. We have the first Mad Max film. Yeah. We have Woody Allen's Manhattan. We have When a Stranger Calls. 1979 is a very strong year. We also have Apocalypse Now, which is one of mine. But I was just about to say both me and Wayne love Apocalypse Now. It's one of our favourite joint films. In this year we've got all these amazing films. Now the year prior or the the film prior to The Warriors for Walter Hill he released The Driver starring Ryan O'Neill. Now The Driver is a very important film within film history because it, it is taking the film noir aesthetic it is modernizing it to a degree in the 1970s. It's bizarrely for a noir film using a country and western soundtrack. Now, if we fast forward for 30, 40 years, Nicholas Winding Refn would make Drive with Ryan Gosling, which is a direct riff on The Driver by Walter Hill. Now, Walter Hill is a very important filmmaker, and I think there's a lineage here. You mentioned in this film, Dan, a moment ago, there's this all-girl gang called The Lizzies. Now, I don't know if The Lizzies would appear on screen if it wasn't for several years prior to this film we had jack hill's switchblade sisters which was right. delving into all female gangs are you a fan of switchblade sisters
1: i am yeah and and you know and i think also you know the, the we have to talk about uh the you know the the glut of women in prison right films that were going <laughs> on greer. in the, the early 70s all you know which yeah and pam greer i mean like like badass women were were definitely, you know, a part of the uh, uh, cinema iconography at
2: yeah. this point. Yeah, and, and also you we talk about 1979, you talk about badass women who was introduced in 1979, Ellen Ripley, because yeah. Alien came out in 1979 as well.
0: That's right. So let's go back to 1965 and 1965 is important because Saul Eunuch wrote the the book of this film. He wrote the Warriors the novel. So he says he wrote this book as kind of a joke and he only wrote the novel in three weeks and essentially now here's important for this film and i think it contextualizes film within 1979 even further the novel the Saul uric's novel from 1965 contains pretty much zero white characters now right, right. so when this film came to fruition paramount they didn't like the idea of having an all-black cast hence why you know if we want to be polite if we have to be polite for this film it is more multicultural shall we say
1: oh yeah it's uh, well it's 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 kind of the epitome of multicultural <laughs> I, I mean so. you look at like you know that gang gathering it's just like you know all colors all different kind of fashion styles all different uh, that's one of my favorite scenes in the entire film because it's just like wow like what a great bunch of faces what a great bunch of costumes and apparently a lot of those people in in the crowd in that scene were actual gang members
0: but uh and they and caused no trouble and they know, and they caused no trouble
1: but uh but yeah I, you know and it's interesting because i think had the film been made Five, six, seven years earlier, I don't think Paramount would have had a problem with an all-black cast because of the black exploitation movement. Right, and and but but by '79, you know, black exploitation, you know, like was very much, you know, had kind of run its course in terms Mm -hmm. of, you know, perceived commercial appeal.
2: You almost have this attitude of, you know, now that that's kind of gone past, everyone has to stay in the lane, and you stick with this. You stick with this, but like you say, it is a very multicultural film, and the gangs, you know, it's not them being united by race, for example. They're all, you know, they're all united by a more, a more common purpose, yep. for example, and it gives the film a great multiculturalism. You say it before the extras pretty much caused no trouble at all. Films like this were very much scapegoats for, like, violence going on at the time because Walter Hill said there were violent incidents when the film came out. I believe there was several deaths that were linked to the film because what Hill said, he said, the movie was very popular with the street gangs, a lot of whom had strong feelings about each other. Suddenly, they went to the movies together. They looked across the aisle, and there were guys they didn't like, so there were a lot of incidents. So, yeah, (laughs) maybe in the kind of film world, everybody was all happy and got on with each other, but in the real life, It was kind of the film demonstrating the real problems that were happening in the city at the time. Well, it's good
0: you bring that up, Wayne. Okay, now, I think it was possibly 2009. Okay, this film, bizarrely, for whatever reason, has a reputation for brutality. Now, when this film was released, I believe there was many gang fights within the cinema. So in 2009, when Entertainment Weekly, the the magazine, were doing a ranking of the most controversial films of all time, this film... (laughs) was the 14th the 14th most controversial film of all time now listen to this this is where it gets fucked up this film is was placed ahead of caligula larry (laughs) clark larry clark's film kids from the 90s and now wait for it because this is a film we've both done okay this was placed more controversial than Diodata's cannibal holocaust. <laughs> wow. Oh, I can totally see why. Oh, wait, no, I can't. <laughs> All right,
1: yeah, no. I mean, and, well, and and I don't know where colors uh, ranked on that list, but I, I was I remember that that there that was a similar situation where there were you know, incidents of gang fights around the screenings and um, and a similar situation where, like, the film's reputation may have suffered, or at least initially, as a result.
0: I, I was looking at this, okay, and we're talking about riots in the cinemaplex, and I was looking for the earliest example. The earliest example I could find was in 1956, the rock and roller Bill Haley, you know, Bill Haley of the Comets, well, in 19- in 1956, he released a film called Rock Around the Clock, hence the, hence the song. Mm. Okay, well, a cinema in London was showing this, and it caused a riot where a group of teddy boys, now if Americans aren't familiar with the teddy boys, they're essentially the 1950s greasers, but they dressed better. <laughs> so, so they were dancing in the aisles, they tore out the cinema seats. They essentially ruined the place.
1: I, I just wanted to, to say I think the film is actually Blackboard Jungle Ooh, that used okay. Rock Around the Clock as the theme song. Yeah, but yes, that's 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 when this happened. But
0: bizarrely, b- bizarrely, Dan, bef- before rock and roll, the earliest incitement of a riot in a a spectacle was at the ballet. The ballet, Dan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the, yeah, the, the the Rite of Spring. Um, <laughs> uh stravinsky 1913
0: 19... <laughs> so we were right in 1913 for stravinsky's rights of spring <laughs> uh, right and, that, and that, then we had to wait till for
1: bill haley uh, in 1956
2: <laughs> i don't know how exactly you like quantify how controversial a film is because i guess everyone can kind of decide to be fair putting it 14th on any ranking is pretty bloody ridiculous i think it's almost the case of when liam and i talked about i don't know if you've seen the movie done mysterious skin it was, no. there was, there was some kind of ban on it in Australia. And I even read it a quote where it was made to seem that the people who were calling it for it to be banned hadn't seen the film, they'd seen the trailers. Oh, right. So with something like The Warriors, you get the sense that it was banned because someone heard about the synopsis. Somebody probably heard the word gang, they heard the word violence, they heard the word fight, whatever. And these reactionary people hearing these words and thinking, this is not gonna be acceptable, this is gonna cause trouble. Right. So that's the strange thing, you watch the film, None of that is true really.
1: Well, and and if you and if you look at the art that was used in the initial ads for the for like the the newspaper ads for the film like it, you know, it looks looks pretty juicy. I mean like <laughs> like you know, it's 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 these these very tough looking guys of, you know, different races uh looking like they're ready to kick some ass and then the uh, the one female is uh, uh, actually shown in in a much greater state of undress than she actually is in the
2: film. <laughs> yeah. So
1: you know they were they were really pushing like, yeah, sex, violence, this is this is this is what we got for you.
2: Well, it was classic sensationalism, isn't it? Like if you want something in a poster, you want something to draw people in, that's the kind of thing you put on. Like you say, pretty much anything depicted on the poster is more downplayed in the film or absent entirely. Right.
0: Right. I believe most of us here, when we were re-watching the film for this episode, we were watching the extended director's cut. So the difference between the extended director's cut and the original theatrical release was Walter Hill in... 1979 when he was making this film he wanted it to be more fantastical he said the original novel by Saul, it was quite ridiculous he saw the fantastical element on it and he wanted to highlight this, this is why he said he wasn't concerned about making the Warriors look realistic, he said he he also said he had no sense to inject middle class morality into this film he said at the time when he made this film, he was obsessed with the vernacular of the American comic book, but here's the thing in 1979, the original theatrical release, he wanted this film to open with sometime in the future. Now, the version we've watched to re-watch for this episode, it does include that. Now... In 1979, Paramount, the producers of this film, they didn't want to have that attached to the film because they thought it was going to be too much Star Wars-like. Here's the weird thing I want to add with Walter Hill, and I don't know if any of us agree. I don't agree with this point from Walter Hill. I don't know what he's really getting to. He says, without the inclusion of Sometime in the Future, the scroll at the start, he said, I thought it was close to incomprehensible without this because it always seemed like a science fiction film to me. Okay, what the fuck?
2: Wow, no, I, I don't I don't agree with that at all. For me, watching this film, this film could have taken place in any time period. you say in the not so distant future, you're talking in the 1970s so we're not really sure when it is, but watching a film like this, there's nothing decidedly futuristic <laughs> about it. Maybe I'm thinking cliche futuristic like you know flying cars, et etc. but it looks like you know people running through all these rundown neighborhoods. So for me, no, I don't agree with that. for me, there's nothing inherently futuristic about the appearance of the film at all. Well and and I'm going to
1: just go out and say here I've seen both versions the the you know the director's cut and the original one and and I'm going to voice the perhaps unpopular opinion that the original the, the original release cut is the superior one. I think the Walter Hill one is interesting yep. <laughs> because it shows you okay what he was you know what he was thinking but I think I don't think the film needs any of that. I don't think uh I don't think it needs a uh you know a prologue to set any kind of near future uh <laughs> uh context and I don't think and the film is cartoonish enough without the the you know cartoon like actual cartoon <laughs> panels being being thrown in. I think you know, and I think there there is you know, I think there is a campy yep. element to it that, that um you know a lot of people didn't pick up on initially, but I you know, it's plain as day to me now. Um, you know, like a, a gang like the punks, like you know, these these white guys with feathered hair and and uh overalls and soccer yep. uh you know uh, rugby shirts and roller skates it's just like a, it's the a 70s know. down it's the oh, 70s yeah. you have to get yeah. ed- anything that points it <laughs> yeah. could be the 70s it is the 70s
2: it's like a weird comedy troupe but, kind of thing isn't it with all these different right. gangs and characters
1: right right i mean it's almost surprising that they didn't have a mime gang you know i mean i guess the baseball furies are kind of that but yeah. it's like oh no there's a few gangs no, say do, nothing. the rivington mimes are do, after do, us you know it's do like,
2: you know what would have happened if there was a mime gang the baseball furies would have swung a baseball bat it would have missed and the mime would have fallen down anyway
1: <laughs> or they would or they would have hit back with a with an invisible bat and uh <laughs> Yeah, it's it, uh, so I really like. Uh, I'm glad that I have seen the you know director's the, the cut, yeah, Walter Hill director's cut. But I, I you know, I watch. I, I actually the other night, while watching for this, I watched the original release, uh, you know, which is like uh, 93 minutes. I mean, it is so taut. It is so there is not a wasted minute in this film, and and you know, I feel like. You know, viewed from a perspective of this far into the 21st century, where I feel like every new film I see, you know, yeah. has at least 20 minutes that could be mm, I think so yeah. easily that that just a film that just delivers the goods on so many levels in an hour and a half gets in, gets out. You know, you're not, there's no backstory with any of these characters. They're just there. And you are just with them in this moment. And that's all you need to be.
0: Well, look at this. This film has became an iconic status. But at the time, Paramount were so disappointed with this film. They thought Walter Hill was going to deliver a gritty New York City drama in the vein of the very popular at the time, Saturday Night Fever. But Hill said, Mm. this is what I was saying, Hill said the novel was very unrealistic and he said to make the film even less realistic and more fantastical, (laughs) which (laughs) Paramount weren't too happy with.
1: Yeah, I get, and, you know and and I get that, you know, Saturday Night Fever was the big, you know, the the reigning box office champ at that point and was, you know, and 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 that's a really great film. Uh, that's that's a film I'll totally go to bat love for. It, it. Love and it. it has that gritty New York yeah. City reality thing going on. So yeah, I mean, you know, I think making it more fantastical, I think I think was great. I, but at the same time, I mean, there is There is so much greediness. I mean, that is obviously the New York City subway system. This is, you know, this is obviously like, you know, a time in, you know, filmed at a time in New York city where the city is, you know, completely on skids economically. Um, there's, you know, there is a lot of crime. There is a lot of just kind of like, you know, you're on the, if you're out in the street, if you're down in the subway, you got to be fending for yourself or (laughs) taking care. And so, you know, so I, you know, take this back to like me seeing it in the movie theater at age 13 or, God, I was twelve at that point.
0: Any riots? Was there any riots? <laughs>
1: um, I, th- I think there was there was talk of riots. There was certainly none at the screening that I saw. Um, were you disappointed? <laughs> uh, no, no, because I, I, because I, I went to a junior high school where there were gangs and where I did have to kind of like watch where I walked and who mm. I talked to. And
0: you said that you're in high school. There was gangs. There was a plethora of gangs. Did any of them go around the school halls in dungarees, roller skates, and kiss face paint? <laughs> 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 no. It,
1: the weirdest thing was that, like, the, there were a couple of gangs at my school that walked around in, they were kind of like uh, satin jackets. Okay. And, and I mean, so this could have this could have been in the wars. They had sat, satin jackets and golf hats. Yeah from like with with like crossed golf clubs on the uh, well wow. you know on the the main field of the cap and I, I remember I think they
0: would have fit into this film <laughs> they would have and, and
1: I I, re- I remember you know I, I had I had homeroom with this kid Darnell who was I guess was part of this one particular gang I can't remember what they're called but he had um, oh and, and all the guys like Uh, Whatever their name was, it was like kind of an iron on lettering on the back of the jacket. It was Sir Blank, So it was like, so so Darnell was Sir Darnell. And so I asked Darnell, I was like, where do you guys get those caps? and he's like man from the country club <laughs> and i'm just thinking Darnell, you don't belong to no damn country club no, like <laughs> there's no fucking way so you know it's it's like like i you know so i i don't know what their deal was i don't know what the country yeah. club was that they supposedly got these from but yeah they could have they could have fit right in with in the warriors
2: can i just say a gang like a, t- a wanna be tough gang wearing country club hats they're not commanding any respect whatsoever <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, but I mean, look look at some of the other gangs in in the Warriors. Like, there's the the guys with like the it's like like the black vests and the red like fedoras and the yeah. like purple satin ties. It's like like you know what's what's your deal, guys?
2: How do you think you decide what gang you want to go to? Is it based like on your fashion sense? Is that how you decide? I
1: I, I think it's probably geographic. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't think any gang in this film is scaring anybody. If you look at the warriors, our maiden gang in this film, half of them look emaciated. I don't think many people are going to be running from them.
2: They're like kids, basically plucked off the street. It's that. It's that kind of. You know, they talk about cults. How cults take people in because they've got nowhere to go. They're kind of at the very the, the lowest point in their life. You kind of get the feeling of that with the warriors, where you know they're kind of not a great position right now. They're brought in. It's like a brotherhood. It's a family. So they find a sense of belonging among them.
1: Right. That the, these are dead end yeah. kids essentially. Yeah. And 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 what I love watching about the film is like these guys, you know everyone in the, if this film was made today, everybody would like be completely buffed out, would have, you know, worked, worked for, you know, three to six months with a trainer and, you know, and, and, and these guys, although I think I think Walter Hill did send them to stunts. Yeah, he did, yeah. Um, because of all the fights they were gonna have, which which I think is really cool. But like these are real looking guys. I mean, even even James Remar, who, you know, is Ajax, who's like, you know, the gang enforcers, mm-hmm. the tough guy. Like, and you know, there's not an ounce of body fat on him, and he's, you know, definitely got impressive musculature, but he's still not yeah. like you know, no one would mistake him for a superhero, or uh, you know, or an NFL player or something. I mean, he's still like kind of slim, and you know, and like his power comes not from the fact that he's fit, but that he's crazy, mm. and that he he wants to fight anybody. And he's there. I mean, that and and like these moments of you know just real brief character establishment where he's on the subway yep. and he's boxing. <laughs> With the with the metal like strap yeah. hangers on the subway, like and 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 with with this maniacal grin. It's like, okay, that dude is nuts and he's gonna get these guys into trouble. Like that's all you need to know. There you need no other context.
0: Us three, me, you, Wayne, we all understand that Walter Hill was injecting a very much fantastical element to this. But you know who this was missed on now roger ebert in his original review gave (laughs) this film two stars and the first paragraph of his review states the warriors is a real peculiarity a movie about street gang warfare written and directed as an exercise in mannerism there's hardly a moment when we believe that the movie's gangs are real or their members are real people or that they inhabit a real city I don't think he got the memo that Walter Hill's essentially making a comic book film.
2: Clearly not.
1: And it's bizarre to me, considering that um, you know, this is a guy who wrote the, the screenplay for *Beyond the Valley of the Dolls*, <laughs> one of my favorite
0: films. Compl- I love that film.
1: Yes, and but but it's like like nobody going to mistake that film for like what the '60s were actually like. You know, it's it's like- <laughs> to this
0: day I still state that *Beyond the Valley of the Dolls* the script of that film is the best thing Roger Ebert ever wrote.
1: I I don't think you're wrong, but but it's but you know but it is very cartoonish. It is very fantastical. It is very like you know okay. It's it's set in in L.A. It's set in Hollywood, but like it's it's yeah. I mean like I, I don't know. I, th- I think that's that's he must not have been taking his humor pills that week.
2: We talk about being cartoonish. It is in a way like you see someone like Ajak who's you know doing like a speed bagging with. Those uh, ho- those hangers on the subway. But there is a lot of kind of interesting nuances with the characters. One of my favorite elements is the dynamic between Swan and Ajax. I guess Swan kind of becomes the de facto leader. Although even Ajax at one point is like, who put you in charge? Because they have a leadership yep. crisis. Swan's very much a kind of pared back yeah. guy. He's more cautious. He's more willing to think things through. Ajax is like the kind of hothead. He's the loose cannon of the group. Right. They spend a lot of this time in the movie running. You say they don't look very buff. I think they're to do so much running. Any muscles they had, they would have lost them anyway. But <laughs> a- a- Ajax, at one point, is like, you know, oh, we're going to get cornered by the gang or we're going to get stopped. Ajax, like, good, because I want to fight. I'm sick of all of this running. So they have that dynamic right. between them. And you. the movie's great because you can kind of see it from both the points of view. You can see from the side of the whole city's after them. Running away is probably the best option, but also you can never run forever. You're going to get boxed in by these gangs. So eventually you're going to have to fight. And it leads to that Baseball Furies fight, which is, I don't know, maybe more comical than it should have been because the Baseball Furies can't hit anything. They were like the stormtroopers of the New York City gang scene. Right.
1: <laughs> totally.
2: Totally. And, and yeah, no, I mean, I, I do
1: think like, you know, there is. In, in that confrontation between Ajax and Swan, like who made you leader, I think, I think some of the other warriors say like, like, you know, this is what Cleon wanted. Like, this is like, like, so there must have been some kind of hierarchy already set in, in, um, in place, but of course, Ajax being Ajax, he's gonna challenge it. <laughs> he's going to see this as his time to kind of like, you know, he wasn't he would never step to Cleon, but he's going to see how far he can push Swan. And yeah, no, that that that's a wonderful dynamic. I think um I think there there are a lot of the interplay between the various characters is really interesting and really you know again like you you don't have really any background on these guys you don't know why they're there. And like, you know, there's, you know, you know, the Puerto Rican guy, there's the funny Jewish guy. It's like, you know, like, okay, why, why are they together? But again, it's probably just like, they all grew up in the same down at the heel stretch of Coney. And, you know, for whatever reason or another, they have no choice but to to band together. So then there's the dynamic between Swan and Mercy, right? which I think, you know, is really one of the great, uh, great, running things throughout throughout this film and mercy is you know she was the the chick of the leader of the orphans who are of course this
0: really they're really low bro
1: yeah they're like you know grade yeah. c you know they didn't even that not only did they not get invited to the to the parlay they didn't even they don't even know about it <laughs> they're barely they're, ba- they're, they're a,
2: barely considered an actual gang aren't they like they're not official enough to be invited to the gang get together <laughs>
1: Right, right. There's that that scene where where the guy from the riffs reports back on you know what's happened with him. And it's like, you know, like the orphans, like, <laughs> Who the you, hell are you, you know, we, we, we you know, <laughs> yeah, we, we don't, uh, we don't even consider them a gang. And they're like, yeah, but they, they, you know, they fight. And, uh, so, so there's this great scene where they're passing through, you know, and this is totally out of uh you know, feels like out of a fifties juvenile delinquent movie where the warriors are passing through the orphans yep. turf, you know, it's some God forsaken corner of the Bronx. And like, you know, there's the initial kind of, like um, tension between them, but then the then Swan and uh, the Scout from from the Warriors kiss enough ass in a like noncommittal way. That like it it makes the orphans leader feel good, <laughs> and it's like okay, yeah, you got you got you know you guys come in peace, you guys can walk on. And then right at that moment, <laughs> Mercy, the uh, you know the 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 orphans leader girl comes out on the steps of the brownstone and starts accusing the orphans dude of being chicken shit. And then <laughs> you know, and you can see that this is a dynamic that has been going on for a long time. That she's just. You know, kind of henpecking at him, and mm. he's, you know, and then of course, like when confronted with her shit, the guy's got to like act tough again to try yep. to impress her. It's like, oh, okay, you can pass through, but you got to remove your colors, <laughs> and that is a bridge too far for the warriors. So, and then it then it escalates
0: here's an interesting little bit of trivia we all know the gang member fox now fox is played by thomas waits the gang member fox is the one who dies tussling with the cop the cop throws him under the subway
1: right He's right he's the scout right
0: the well part. here's a little interesting bit of trivia okay this wasn't originally in the script okay The actor, Thomas Waits, was so difficult to work with, he was fired. And because he was fired, the script was all erred. But there (laughs) were still scenes that needed to be shot, and they had to use a body double. This firing fallen out led to Waits to demand his name not to be credited on the film, hence why at the end of this film, there is no credit for gang member Fox. Ugh
2: wow i like how that makes me think of when someone said you know when you watch a tv show and a character gets killed off someone said that's basically you watching them getting fired <laughs> in real time i think so <laughs> it was a good call it, it's a well yeah the, the, that was
1: and and you know and mercy's part of that scene as well so you know i think they had to shoot with a body double to uh to, you know to, to make it look like fox was getting uh you know, thrown in the path of an oncoming subway but um you know back back to the well and and also I think not in the script and back to Swan and Mercy was this relationship between Mercy and Swan where she's she wants to tag along with the warriors yep. after they've like you know stepped to the orphans and 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 uh, shown them a thing or two like she you know she, she's another person you know who who just has no there, there's no future where she is so she's you know, as as bad bad off as the warriors are, she thinks like they're they're her yep. ticket out of the Bronx. She can at least
0: She she's gone from the orphans who are bottom barrel to the warriors who are second bottom barrel. She's she's slowly <laughs> kind playing exactly. way up the gang lather.
2: It's technically an upgrade. But there's
1: this chemistry between her and Swan, who's really not excited about having her tag along because of course this is making things more difficult. But then there's you know, he's also clearly feeling an attraction to her. She's feeling an attraction to him. They're bickering, you know, the entire way back to Coney Island. And, uh, and th- you know, the more I've seen this film over the years, the more that's their relationship becomes one of my favorite parts of the film.
0: I agree. Now this film, you know, we all everybody recontextualizes films, reanalyzes films. And you could say this film is hyper masculine. You know, we have this gangland, this gang warfare in the streets of New York. Now even our good guys, we have Ajax who we've just mentioned, uh, quote-unquote good guys, because he's part of our lead gang, the Warriors. But in a pivotal scene in this film, he exits this film by almost semi-harassing this woman in the park on her own at night who turns out to be an undercover cop. And he's arrested. Mm. So that's how he kind of leaves the film. And that's where he leaves. But, you know, we've previously mentioned we have Mercy. Now, Mercy, you could say, is taken her own notion. It's a very much a... A female-led intuition on Walter Hill's part. But as we mentioned earlier, we also had the Lizzie's. Now the Lizzie's, in your eyes, you're saying are an all-lesbian female gang. It's essentially a, a manless society the, li- the Lizzie's are living in. So they don't need men. So on one hand, you could say, okay, we've got this hyper-masculinized world, what Walter Hill has created. But on the other hand, you know, we're taking this Jack Hill, Switchblade sister influence. We're taking a, a new gender politics, so to speak. And we're giving a voice to marginalize in many aspects because pretty much every character in this film is marginalized in society. But in, especially in this world, we're giving the marginalized, marginalized the women a voice a a a reason to be other than just the girlfriend and i think that's what the lizzie's represent they're taking stock from you know the the palm greers of the 1970s and they're putting forth a very an active participant female perspective
1: well, and even the undercover cop who who busts yes. Ajax. I mean, she's clearly a strong a strong woman who is not taking his his shit. And like, it's been established from the get go that Ajax is, you know, like he he's looking to get laid, and that's like what he one of the things he's hoping for out of this this adventure. And so, and you know, and which you know, that's the foreshadowing of like that's what ultimately leads to his downfall it's like not the not not his propensity for violence but his his desire for 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 sex and and i love that scene because you know after she cups him to the bench (laughs) like james remar like it, it's like he becomes an animal. Like he mm-hmm. is yeah. so angry, he is, is just like so consumed by rage and fury and disbelief. And he's like dragging the dragging the park bench with him. He is just like so much adrenaline going, so much anger. Like, and even when the cops descend on him, he's he's punching at him like with one hand cuffed yeah. to the bench. And, he's like a and caged animal. Yeah, it's it's a it's an incredible scene.
2: I do think this film does a lot to kind of subvert your expectations because this film is 1979. I feel this film does something that Die Hard did almost a decade later but almost doesn't kind of get the credit for it because when you think of the 80s you think of the big action stars you had your schwarzeneggers you had your stallones you know your jean-claude van dammes the muscly dudes who were kicking everybody's ass the explosions the gunfights etc then die hard came along and someone made a very good point about it it was a film that was almost a send-up of those kind of hyper macho films because what does john mclean spend a lot of that film doing he spends a lot of his time running away from the baddies and calling for help you watch something like the warriors i first watched this maybe something like a decade ago. Maybe I went in with the wrong expectations. I thought, it's a film called The Warriors. It's a film about gangs. It's going to have a lot of fights. It doesn't really. I mean, you talk about the muscles, like you say, they probably lost them all from the running, but <laughs> The Warriors spend the warriors spend the majority of this film essentially running away from danger. It really does, I think, give you a scale of how big New York City is. It's what, like 30 miles. They have to travel or something. They spend a lot of the time running away. They do basically everything they can to avoid yeah. fighting. Ajax being the exception, of course, because you know he's spoiling for a fight, as we can tell, but for a lot of the film, it's them just kind of running away. And I guess I was let down by that first time, but when I watched it back second time, I appreciated more. Thought that's more realistic, that's what you do. If it's what seven or eight guys against the city, you're going to want to run away from that conflict,
0: right? And I think this comes into what you're saying, Wayne. Okay, this film was produced by Lawrence Gordon. Now, Lawrence Gordon discovered this book the Sol Yurik book, when he was looking in the discount section, he loved the book so much, or he loved the story so much, I should say. He bought the rights out of his own money. So Gordon, Lawrence Gordon, he was previously working with hill on the driver so he approached hill to direct direct this film and hill loved the story but he thought the studios wouldn't be interested as it didn't lend itself to named actors so lawrence gordon and walter hill they began production on a western called the last gun so the last gun fell through they returned to the warriors but here's what i think is pertinent to what you're saying now, Lawrence Gordon, when he was asked about this film, he likens it to the film The Guns of Navarone. So maybe an unlikely reference, but he said that he <laughs> states this film is basically, and we're talking about the Warriors, is basically an adventure film with gang war taking place in the background, in the way Guns of Navarone is an adventure film taking place with war in the background. And I think that is what you are speaking to, Wade. I think that this film, okay, on the surface, okay, we've got the we've got the gang warfare, we've got the fights we've got the the drama so to speak but when you look into it you're seeing class conflict you're seeing the the things that are on the periphery of society you're seeing the outcasts of society because what you're really getting is the interaction between these very working class new york city males especially and I think that is what lends itself to longevity because if, if anybody else, anybody could turn on any martial arts film if they wanted to see fighting, but you're seeing something else. You're seeing something with a little bit more depth. And I think why this film stands up to the test of time is because like uh, Dan, you were saying, it doesn't really give you backstory. It's not placing middle-class morality onto the story. There's no morale to the end of this film where we're like, okay, here's the bad outcome we're seeing the lives of these people, these working class kids, who probably have no hope, they probably have no future, but the gang gives them a certain place, it gives them a certain identity, and within the world, they become important. Well,
1: and and this also gets into, and, and if we may bring it back to baseball in the 70s for a second, one, you know, the 70s, to me, is the age of the yeah. anti-hero. Mm. And, and we really, you know, and We see this in baseball in the 1970s where guys like Doc Ellis and Bill Lee and, you know, and where it's like, you know, uh, Richie Allen, all all these guys who are like, like baseball was once this vestige of heroism and, you know, baseball stars were heroes. And now these are, you know, here we have these great baseball players who are maybe not willing to, you know, parrot the old bromides and you know just like play nice like they actually have opinions and like don't care if the fans hate them for it or don't you know and and maybe some of the fans love them more because they're speaking their minds and you know and so the warriors like this is like the whole film is pure anti-hero because even even the warriors who are ostensibly the heroes of the film like these are not good people no you know in in the standard sense like like you know somebody like swan has a definite like sense of if not morality a sense of like yeah. you know to just uh, like a world view that's very like that that he adheres to and you know and 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 how ha- a, a code of conduct but you know they're breaking the law right and left they're tagging tagging gravestones. (laughs) They're hopping, hopping the turnstiles at, at, uh, at, uh, in the subway there. And so everyone in this world is just like you're saying, Liam, like they're, they're all engaged in this struggle to survive. And that's, and, and so, you know, you can identify with them or you can not, but like, that's, that's, you know, um, you know, and, and I'm so like that, final scene where it's like you know the riffs come upon you know come upon them on the beach in coney island where they're having their final standoff with the rogues and you know and and the leader of the rogues is waving the gun at them and is about about to waste them um and then the riffs show up and and you know it's like and by this time the Mm -hmm. riffs know who actually did shoot cyrus and they're here for for revenge and like that's that's just such a powerful scene where it's like you know this massive black gang all black gang appears on the the beach you know to kind of confront these two warring white gangs and it's sort of like okay this is the white gang that we're here for this white gang you can go in peace and it's just like this sense of like it's it's not racial it's not you know it's it's sort of like we're all kind of in the same world and we're all you know we all want the same things we again with the code of conduct like these guys fucked up we're gonna we're going after yep. them you guys like and and by the way we're oppressed at how you handled yourselves out there
2: and it's not even like a in terms of a kind of a good guys win bad guys lose thing either because the whole struggle for the war is it's survival like you say it's like survival of the fittest they get to the end of the film the, the rogues have been dealt with the rifts just let them go so it's almost like kind of an ambiguous ending they haven't really won anything they've just managed to survive they've lost members of their crew so they've lost if anything else but they still get to you know not walk off into the sunset but they still get to walk away with their lives intact
0: now Luke walk it walk, walk into the surf <laughs> no look yeah. all three of us here we're massive music guys and i think we we, we can't not discuss the score in this film so the score mm. the original instrumental score it's very synth heavy it's like this juxtaposition between disco and rock by way of 1979 and that is by barry de now there is a theme and it plays at the end of this song it's called in this city and this was written by Vorzen and joe walsh yes joe walsh from the eagles
1: yeah and and I don't I don't know the story of how I had he no got idea. involved with in this, which you know, which it, it seems like such a strange combination. Except that you know, they divorzen was a guy who you know goes back decades in the music industry. You know, even from this point, he you know he founded co-founded Valiant Records in the mid '60s, oh, really? which uh, best known for yeah, they put out uh, the Association. And, and so I just feel like at some... And, and then he, DeVorzon, composed Theme from SWAT, which was one of my all-time favorite, you know, instrumental jams of the 70s, uh, like 1975. And so I just feel like at some point, Joe Walsh and Barry DeVorzon must have crossed paths. And, and it was like, hey, I, you know, I need, need a song. You, you want to do this? And, it's, and, you know, I think DeVorzon's score minus that song is yeah. incredible it just has this great you know like it re- this kinetic pulsating energy that really works well with all the scenes of the subway cars going by and and you know just really captures that that energy and that late 70s kind of you know like you know we're in the future but everything's falling apart type of uh, vibe No, i'm going to
0: place this to you dan because i to be honest look i have never heard this song okay in the city from this film in 1979 it was released the film in 1979 the eagles would also release their album the long run and now on the album the long run in the city the song from this film was re-recorded unreleased by the eagles have you heard that version and if so what the hell is it like yeah
1: it's it's pretty much the, well you, know, you have to remember joe walsh was in the eagles at this yeah point. yeah so so um so it's it's pretty similar i mean and bill bill simchik who uh was the eagles producer at this time he also uh i believe engineered and produced the joe walsh version on the soundtrack so
2: it's it's not it's it's not very different. Something else I love about the soundtrack as well is how it's included into the film because one of the... I guess you could call it a framing device. Is there's a DJ who's essentially giving updates? She's you know, hey, how are we doing out there, boppers? And she's talking about she's the one that kind of breaks the news that the warriors are the ones being looked for and you know, carrying the updates on and how she plays the music. I like that how it was almost diegetic. It was a character in the movie that was playing the different. songs. How
0: much do you think they took the inspiration from Vanishing Point? I think oh, absolutely.
2: A- That's that is so Vanishing Point.
1: Uh, yeah, it's and uh, but but it's. It is- a great- Great. device and uh and and again speaking you know back to your point about the strong women in this film i mean this, this it's a female dj who's like you know she's clearly like clued into what's going on and she's you know she's she's not messing about with like the instructions she's yeah. forwarding and 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 dissing the the gangs
2: that couldn't couldn't stop the warriors just so as well one of the best like kind of nonchalant lines she has is she's constantly going about you know the warriors are still out there you need to go and get the warriors and at the end she's like oh it turns out the the warriors were cleared sorry about that warriors
1: (laughs) (laughs) totally but but you know it's it's uh yeah um you know and, and the thing is like like as much as i you know i you know joe walsh's involvement is a complete mystery to me I think the song is great and really taps into that, you know, that thing we're talking about, that, that sense of like survival of the fittest, you know, it's like, you know, and, and lyrically it's a very simple song, but it's very, you know, like it's, it's not, there's no romance to it in, except in the sense of like, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 the romance of the, you know, the naked city, you know, city streets don't have much pity when you're down. That's where you'll <laughs> stay. I mean, that completely captures the vibe of the film. And and I remember like, you know, uh, like, so so the film was released in February 79. The single this single is not actually released until the fall of that year, as I recall, and doesn't really get, you know, start heading up the charts until towards the end of the year. And I rem- I remember moving to Chicago at the end of 79. I'd, you know, spoiler alert, alert, I didn't wind up moving to New York City. <laughs> and um, But I remember, you know, Chicago was the first, like, seriously urban yep. experience I'd had, like, as a resident. And I remember, like, you know, hearing in the city come up on my clock radio like you know in early 1980 and i'm like looking out the window of my apartment building onto a bunch of other apartment buildings and like the frozen street below and like it that that song hit me hard man i was just like yeah like this you know i i lived a relatively privileged existence but i lived not far from one of the worst uh, housing projects in Chicago and I remember being aware of that and just being like <laughs> yeah like it's no joke and I'm I'm lucky my life panned out you know how it did because otherwise I would be you know uh staying down uh, on the city streets and I would be you know dealing with a lot fewer options than I had and it was uh You know, so, so, and, and still, like, I hear that song now and it really comes back to me. It still hits that same nerve. And, and seeing it, you know, hearing it at the end of the film, like, it's like, yeah, this, this wraps it up. You're beginning to
0: feel Swan's pain for the film. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I, and, and Swan is definitely a character I related to even then because I was always a pretty level headed kid. I was always like, OK, like, here's the situation How you know, like, you know, like I said, like in my junior high, there were gangs and there were and there was always there were would be rumors like, oh, after school, this gang from the neighborhood, you know, south of Wilshire is going to come up and fuck with people. So be careful on your way to the bus. And that would really freak me out. So
0: your gang wore country club hats. What was the neighboring? <laughs> what, was the, right. what was the neighboring gang's attire? I, I, never we know. never saw them. They were all. They were always just rumored.
1: <laughs> they were rumored to show up, and that was enough to freak you out. So, you know, so you'd be sitting there in social studies class, thinking like, "Okay, what's the quickest way to the bus after <laughs> you know once the bell rings?" And so, like in many ways, so I could really relate to that Swan mentality. It was like. Like, we have to get home. That's the Mm. most important thing. We only fight if we're absolutely cornered and have no other option.
2: I know that Michael Beck, who plays Swan, he did get a lot of flack for his performance. A lot of people called it Wooden. I think a lot of the line deliveries were called Wooden as well. For me with Swan, I think the idea with him is he was supposed to be a very stoic character, because he feels like right. he's taken up this mantle, the leader of the warriors. He's supposed to try and appear at least somewhat unflappable. They're having that confrontation with the orphans, and it seems like, it, it seems like it's kind of bubbling under the surface, like it's going to escalate into violence, but he... Keeps things on an even keel. I felt like that's what Michael was going for when he gave that performance. He was trying to look like the guy who's you know steady-handed, doesn't fly off the handle like Ajax. He's almost existing as a counterpoint to Ajax.
1: Right, and 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 the 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 one place that he really flies off the handle is in his uh, interactions with yeah. Mercy, <laughs> because because like like he can handle. He can handle like the gangs, you know, he can handle opposition within his own gang. He can't handle a woman who, you know, is talking back to him and is and, you know, has a backbone and personality of her own. And, you know, and, and at that point, you know, like and, and especially one that he feels attraction to. And, and that's distracting yep. him from his his appointed goal. And, you know, and at one point he's just like, you know, it, it, like like the total, you know, hugely sexy, you know i mean a line that even rivals ajax's line lines for sexism where he just turns through he's like why don't you strap a mattress to your back <laughs> you know it's just like oh dude what you know but but it's it's so perfect for that character where it's just like she's pushing his buttons in a way that none of these other none of these other challenges are doing and like ultimately like all he can do is hit back by just saying this really awful
0: thing well well, here's a question i'm gonna pause it okay this film is very dystopian in many sense it's a portrayal of new york on the skids so do swan and mercy in many aspects represent hope within this film are they the embodiment of something positive a positive change is coming
1: well, I don't know about a positive change, uh, yep. like in the grand scheme, but you know, it's it's like the Adam and Eve <laughs> of this, uh, you know, post apocalyptic uh, uh, landscape. You know, they they um, you know there is the sense that like okay, they've made, you know they they've made it together to Coney Island. She has yep. shown her worth, you know, uh, uh, in in the fight against the punks. She's, you know, she's been kind of ride yep. or die, you know, to use a 21st century <laughs> expression uh, with with them. And you could see like, OK, now that they've safe, now that all this, you know, other noise is been washed out that like, yeah, maybe they can have yep. a romance. Maybe they can, you know, find love. And yeah, that is that is an attractive you know, uh, that is a ray of hope yeah. and, and, you know, and who knows, you know, I mean, and these again, these are both people at the bottom of the socioeconomic barrel. They're people who's, you know, probably have, you know, few, if any marketable right. skills. <laughs> uh, so who knows what their life is going to be like? But yeah, that the, the, the there is that kernel of hope that their romance represents. So let's represents.
0: look at this film. OK, we've got a terrific score. We've got a great cast, it's an ensemble cast. We have a great location. And, look, let's highlight this location because we're in New York, we're in 1979, even though Walter Hill thinks this is some fantastical future, but whatever. But, the DP of this film, Andrew Laszlo. Now, he is creating such an aesthetically great landscape. Now, when they were making this film, the weather was so bad, it kind of jolted production. But Laszlo had this decision, and I think it bears well on the aesthetic of this film. He decided for all exterior shots, he was gonna hose down everything. Give it a wet look. And what this adds is it gives it a nice texture. Because what is what is this film? It's very neon. It's very and it's all shot at yes. night. So what we're getting is all these reflective neon lights. And it adds this layered texture to the film. And just like Walter Hill's previous film, The Driver, which was this neon noir, this is very much in that vein. It's very much, in some ways, it's noirish, but it's very much a neon nighttime New York film that is shot terrifically. And a lot of that goes to Andrew Laszlo, who's a terrific DP on this film.
1: Right. And the, so the only day daylight scene we get is the Coney Island yeah. confrontation. Like you know, where the sun is coming up, they're uh, they're on the beach, uh, waves are rolling in, and that's like the first time you see, you know, and and you know, I guess symbolically, it's like it all comes to light, <laughs> uh, in 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 this, uh, in this scene, but the um, yeah, you know, and 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 I think if I, I mean I haven't seen it since it came out because I absolutely loathed it, but I f- I feel like Walter Hill went for a similar vibe and effect with Streets of Fire. But uh, he didn't didn't really have the film to back it up.
0: The same year this film was made was The Wanderers, which was released 1979. And I know it's yeah. much similar thematically. What they'd done at Paramount was rushed this release to make it not look like they were riffing on The Wanderers. Now, I, I've never seen The Wanderers. I'm yeah. sure you have. I know it's supposed to be a terrific New York film. And I believe it is... Yeah, we we've mentioned this guy in several episodes. It's one of Vincent Gallo's favorite films.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's 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 a good film. I I I mean, I I kind of feel like when you talk to people who love that film, they tend to be people who are from Fair. New York City. Like, in, in a way, like, whereas The Warriors, I feel like, obviously, there's the New York connection. But I feel like people relate to that film regardless of where they're from. The Wanderers, you know, it's it's also kind of, uh, you know, it's nostalgic in, like, the post-Happy Days, post-American Graffiti. It, it's it's obviously grittier than, than either of those things. But, but it's coming from that same place of the past, whereas Warriors is very much, you know... Walter Hill's concept aside it was very much you know you're watching it and it was very much in the moment whereas like The Wanderers I remember my dad saying oh yeah I remember <laughs> the Ford and Baldies and you know stuff like that and uh, uh, so yeah I, I, I don't I just in general I don't think it's as good a film but it's worth watching so
2: the Wanderers is a film I actually only came across when I was doing research for The Warriors and like you say it's the film that tried to kind of get the jump on Warriors because you've had so many situations in film history where two very similar films came out at the same time very different visions but the similar concept so Dan, because this is a film you love very much, I think you'd say it's a favourite film of yours, why do you think The Warriors has kind of had the enduring legacy it had that maybe The Warriors didn't have? Like, what was it about The Warriors that struck a chord in the way The Wanderers didn't?
1: I think there is more of a multicultural aspect to this film. I think I think The Wanderers, that was mostly, if I remember correctly, it was mostly white gangs, mostly white actors. Um, this is much more multicultural that it has... I think the kineticism of it is very powerful and just, you know, the energy coming off it, like the Wanderers does not have that. Um, I think the music is part of it. And then I think there is also the, you know, there's there's the campier (laughs) aspects. I mean, like you know like how many times over the years have you heard somebody reference can you dig <laughs> it or warriors come out and play you know it's like like this the, these catchphrases have just like embedded themselves in popular culture in a way that nothing from the Wanderers well it's crazy
0: that Cyrus has became so iconic because the actor of Cyrus Roger Hill he was a last minute addition the actor who was supposed mm-hmm. to play the role didn't show up for a day of filming so Roger Hill was ready to go as he was recently playing hamlet on broadway now now there was no lines improvised in his monologue in this film but you can see the theatrical kind of performance that roger hill is playing in cyrus as he is gestating to his hordes of listeners
1: absolutely and 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 the, his projection and and the dramatic pauses like it feels very natural to him you know so so yep. you feel like yes like i can i can see why this guy would Don, be the leader Don. you know the the kind of almost cult leader
0: yeah he, you mean you can see how you can dig it? I can dig it. I can totally yeah. dig Although, it. Although, can I just say, you
2: know, people talk about the, oh, can you dig it, sucker, and the Warriors come out to play. I have to say, neither of those are my favorite line of the movie. My favorite line comes from Ajax during the confrontation with the Baseball Furies when he turns to them and says, I'll shove that bat up your ass and turn you into a popsicle. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and and let me let me say that you know, when my friends and I first saw that film, that was the line we were all talking about at school. Then, you know, that the next week, it, the can you dig it to come out to play that hadn't, yeah. you know, uh, um, you know, when, by the time I got to high school a few years later, like the whole, um, Luther, yep. the David Patrick Kelly character, the the leader of the rogues. He kind of gradually, I, I witnessed. Like by the eighties, he was the character that everybody loved in the okay. film, and that the like, you know, the the no no reason. <laughs> I just like you know, I was like I'm having a good time, you know that that's that thing. Like all of a sudden, like by the time I was in high school, all my friends would 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 whip out those lines versus you know uh the, the the popsicle one but but the but initially the the popsicle bat one was the was, do you think
0: was it way. rivals Roddy, Roddy piper and in they in, in john Carpenter's they live i'm here i'm here <laughs> to kick ass and chew bubble gum and i'm all a little bubble gum <laughs> <laughs>
1: it, it's I, I think I think the Piper line, I think the Bubblegum line has has a lot more pop cultural Possibly, traction yeah. than the Popsicle one at this point. Mm-hmm. But I, I kind of prefer the Warriors one. But well. look, Dan,
0: mm-hmm. we said earlier of Roger Ebert's kind of disparaging review of this film. So we can't end this on a negative note because our favorite of a film we trust, the film critic, the preeminent film critic of the 1970s, Pauline Kael. She said this film is a real movie maker's movie movie and it is like visual rock. That sums up this film, Dan.
1: Absolutely. And and you know, and I think Pauline kale was not somebody who real you know, for whom rock was was daily uh daily part of her diet, no, but uh but I think she was right. I think it, it is a rock and roll film. It is uh you know it is it has that kind of visceral power that that you know the best rock and roll does and so yeah right on pauline
0: so dan we are very pleased to have you on this episode and look the warriors is a terrific film it is maybe the most enduring walter hill film so since you are our guest for today mr epstein what is it about the Warriors if you can sum it up in one sentence? What grabs you? What gravitates you towards that film? What is it about Walter Hill's 1979 classic that just makes you dig it? To me,
1: it is the perfect action film. It is and uh the perfect New York City action film. And where not only you know the action is not just the characters on screen but the the city itself and the the movement of the city uh, is a character in it and as a as a diehard fan of you know so many things that come out of new york but especially new uh new york related cinema i mean it's 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 a wonderful viewing experience and one that that reveals its riches to me, anew each time I watch it.
2: So those were our thoughts and opinions on the 1979 cult classic, The Warriors. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we hope you learned a few things and perhaps we even provided you with an interesting new perspective. A big thanks to Dan Epstein for joining us for this episode, for bringing us this film to analyze and to you, the audience, for joining us for episode 69 of In Film Retrust. I'm Wayne. I'm Liam. Join us next time when we discuss, dissect and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the mainstream. (laughs) you <laughs>